I asked you to be prepared with a Bible if you could, so I'd ask you to turn to Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 24. Romans 1, starting in verse 24. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. If you're just joining us, we started teaching through the book of Romans a number of weeks ago. Uh, we're maybe three, four weeks in now. We're calling the, the overall theme of the book, which is, I think is consistent with what the book says, rags to righteous, the power of God in Romans. How powerful is our God to take people who are sinful, who are otherwise, even our righteousness, Scripture tells us, is as filthy rags before the Lord. And people like that somehow find themselves with the righteousness, the perfect record of Jesus. And so that is the story of Romans, and we're hopefully week by week unfolding that in greater detail and in greater glory and majesty. So Romans 1, starting in verse 24, I'm going to read down now through the end of the chapter. Romans 1, 24. It says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray together that God helps us benefit from his word. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge your power, your might, your perfections. You're perfect in everything that you put your mind to, perfect in every action, perfect in all love, perfect in all mercy, and perfect in all wrath. You're beyond us in every single way in that, in that particular category. We are imperfect. We have yet to come up with something impressive on our own. You are source and we are dependent. And so we're asking this morning that you would comfort us. We thank you for the, the grace of Jesus Christ, the invitation that we have to stand with you and before you. We would have no standing had you not shown us your love, your care, your mercy in Christ. And I pray that in that assurance that we would not only tremble, but we would know that you're a father who loves us who cares for us, who wants to instruct us and help us to be your reconcilers, your ambassadors in the world. 
God, I pray for, for a certain kind of trembling as well, that we would never forget that sin is real, that it matters, that we would pray and think and speak with one another and engage the world with a sober-mindedness about the potential to be left to our own devices. And I ask this morning, God, that as we read through and think through and consider things that are really, in a lot of ways, they're difficult, or at least to understand how this all works. God, I pray that you would give us the blessing of your Spirit. Holy Spirit, rest here. Help me to be a benefit, and I pray you'd unite us by your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most fun things about having slightly older children is the possibility to introduce them to music. And at different times, our children have discovered or sort of become awake to in different sort of moments, different songs, the idea that you can make music on your own and what that might be like. They begin asking questions, at least in the the moments where you feel like you're doing something right, asking questions about, well, what kind of music do you like and why and what does this mean? And so it feels not only like a joy, but a certain kind of responsibility at a point to say, well, I want to engage them well. And yes, of course, that sometimes means saying, no, I don't listen to that or to this because of these reasons. I don't think it's edifying. I don't know if it's wise. You know, sometimes it's just not going to be helpful to you. So sometimes you push away, and then other times you say, well, these are some things that I've enjoyed or have been encouraging or embraced, and you get to rediscover things with your kids. Well, one of the favorite rediscoveries of mine a number of years ago was Johnny Cash. And getting to listen to these songs as an excuse for parenting is really fun. One of the favorite Johnny Cash songs around our house is a song about wrath. It's called When the Man Comes Around. If you haven't had the joy of hearing this song, it is Johnny Cash giving a raspy, deep, rumbling rendition of a picture of what it looks like when Jesus comes back to finally judge the world. If you turn through the pages of the last number of chapters of Revelation, you'll see lyrics from this song, When the Man Comes Around, Coming to Life. And it is, in many ways, one of the most profound, consistent, and sturdy songs that deals with the reality that Jesus is Lord and that God has a right to rule and to reign, and more than that, to judge. And so I want you to picture this. This is Johnny Cash singing as deep and raspy as you could possibly get, describing all of the pictures, the final judgment in Revelation. And as we think through what those pictures might be, that, I mean, Revelation is full of very scary, trembling images. There are bowls full of wrath that get poured out one by one. There are descriptions of sinners being harvested with a scythe. I don't know how you say scythe or scythe. Blood pooling up. You get to Revelation 19 and Jesus comes back riding on a pristine white horse, tattoos and a sword in his mouth, coming to bring wrath and judgment. Armies arrayed with him and around him. These are terrifying pictures. But I've always been struck 
So one of the lines near the end of all of this terrifying imagery of the wrath of God is uttered as a lyric. It's really a quotation of scripture from Johnny Cash. And he has a line that says this. Now, I've got to imagine I'm not going to pretend to do it, but it's imagine raspy, deep, folksy, cashy voice. He says, whoever is unjust, let him be unjust still. Whoever is righteous, let him be righteous still. Whoever is filthy, let him be filthy still. Listen to the words long written down when the man comes around. It's such a profound statement and an interesting thing to be picked and plucked up and then put down in this song. Rather than giving it just as a, a word from, from Johnny Cash, I thought, well, maybe we could just read it straight from Revelation 22, which is essentially a, a quotation. And following all of those images of what's going to happen in the end of all of this judgment, Revelation chapter 22, verse 11 declares this, let the evil doer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. And what it seems to picture for us is the idea that one of the worst things, in fact, the worst thing that God might do in bringing his wrath is to let us be what we will be. To simply pause his active movement into humanity, to stop wrestling, to stop striving with us, to stop calling out, to stop giving grace. Jesus, coming back to bring judgment, at one point as he's coming with his armies, he says, no, 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 stop the whole show. No more counting, no negotiating Everything just halts. I'm coming back. What's done is done. And judgment is here. In other words, one of the final nails in a coffin or one of the most terrifying bits of wrath is that God simply says, fine. Last week, Brian mentioned that phrasing. Some have said that heaven is man saying to God, your will be done. But ultimately, hell will be God saying to man, no, 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 fine, your will be done. And that's what's pictured from Revelation 22, is that finally God just says, that's it. Just those who are unrighteous, be unrighteous still. And those who are filthy, be filthy still. I bring this up because I think that what Paul is trying to get at, he's looking forward into the future. He knows what God is like. He knows the distress of mankind in the fall. He knows the necessity of being saved, the necessity of having a righteousness that, are, that is not our own. And he brings up this concept. It's going to be the first point that I want to mention as we consider the end of Romans chapter 1. I'm going to have a pretty straightforward, you know, three-point little outline this morning. And they're going to go like this. The first, so we've just mentioned, this idea of divine abandonment. Now, that'll be the phrase we want to think about this morning, divine abandonment. And second, we're going to consider, well, then what does that look like? It leads to what I think of Scripture calls dishonorable passions, dishonorable passions. And then finally, we're going to consider debased minds. So divine abandonment, dishonorable passion, and then debased minds. 
That'll be the outline for the end of Romans 1, at least the way that we try to think through it. I want to show you now where I get this idea of divine abandonment. The not once and not twice, but three times to explain what God is doing ultimately with sin. In verse 24, Paul says, therefore, remember what this is coming after? This is coming after the idea that Mankind has suppressed the knowledge of, the God, of, of God, suppressed the knowledge of God, and then exchanged or substituted true worship of him for idols. Therefore, and what does the phrase say? This is what should be terrifying, and I think oftentimes when we read the end of Romans 1, we don't feel the terror in it. By the time you get to Revelation 22, you feel the terror, but Paul's trying to make us feel the terror here. Therefore, in verse 24, God gave them up. He repeats it in verse 26, for this reason, pointing to their idolatry, for this reason, he says in verse 26, God gave them up. And then finally, again, in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. What a phrase. This has been called by theologians a sort of judicial abandonment. That this is a a verdict that ultimately and finally God would stop striving and God would stop offering patient mercy and he would simply pull back. And then ultimately, the wrath of God in its worst form would be to finally let us have what we want too much. To finally let us fully and totally and finally exchange the idols that we've built in place of him and for him to just say, fine. And there's a sense here then, because of this reality, because God would say to us, finally, I won't strive forever. I won't stand idle forever. That ultimately the greatest punishment for sin is to be left in the sin. There is a sense in which abandonment, and so many of us, I think, have felt this. Have you ever felt that the, the worst problem of sin is what it creates for you? That the sin itself ultimately becomes the trap? The thing that you regret and look back on is that you, you just wish you could go back and undo that thing. Because it's that thing that haunts us. It's that thing that creates the difficulty. Sin is its own worst punishment. I think he's going to bring that up in verse 27. At the end, he says they will receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. There's a sense in which we experience the penalty of sin in the moment that we sin. And imagine God saying, once and for all, I'm going to stop trying to make this better. I'm just not going to protect anymore. I'm not going to offer grace anymore. There won't be a kind of mediating presence, no more mitigating no more pulling you back, no more it's not as bad as it could have been, just go. That's why ultimately cries for God to leave us alone or a desire to not have him as a part of life is a terrifying thought. The sophisticated atheist who says, I don't need God, nor would I want him, will ultimately get his wish, but he has no idea how terrifying that would be. 
So I would make the case, and I believe that Paul makes it so clearly, that the worst thing that can happen in the wrath of God, well, what is the wrath of God like? There is an active wrath of God where he comes in and he chastens and he, he, he tries to draw back and he brings truth that cuts like a knife. Well, those are active forms of wrath. We would rather have those all day long than what you might call the passive form of God, God's wrath where he simply cuts the ropes and lets go. So that's the negative side of things. I think, though, that we understand and realize that on the flip side, the thing that is so helpful is when God does, in fact, keep us. When he pulls us back. When our sinfulness brings us to the brink, but God is there and he's, he's pulling. Why else would we pray the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us to pray? What do we pray? We pray, God, please deliver us from evil. Don't deliver us into temptation. It's as though the picture of the world, even as it is now in all of our sinfulness, the picture of the world now as it is, is God consistently holding on to the back of collars. You ever seen a parent like this? I wanted to give the picture. I saw a mom one time in the mall with a full-on harness leash system with their child. Have you seen these things? I mean, one, I could never do that thing because I could yank a kid. I'm just saying. I mean, like, you could really, that would be a, not a good sight. But that picture seemed a little bit too much. I mean, let's be honest. When, when you see that, if you see a person who has to full-on, like, harness with metal their child to have them bring in public, you kind of think, well, the kid's got some control here, right? I mean, the kid's kind of, and so I didn't want to give that picture what God is. It's, it's more like a gentle, wise father sitting overseeing the thing, and the kid's getting a little rowdy and running. He's going to hurt his sister, and he just pulls with a finger, maybe like a pinky in the back of the collar, and he slows the kid down. And the kid turns and looks and sees dad's eyes and realizes, okay, I got to cool it here. It's as though one of the goodness, the hidden secret goodnesses of God as a father to us is that he's constantly tugging on the back of the collar that the Spirit is sent in just the right moment to bring a bit of conviction over sin. That in the moments when we're given power to say no to that thing that's so tempting, that God was there and he was pulling and he was mediating and he was mitigating our temptations. That any one of us isn't as bad as we could be because God has seen fit to not give us up. What an amazing thought. And what confidence we can have as his children to cry out to the Father and say, Father, keep me from evil. Please keep me from temptation. Pull me back. Hold me tight. Don't give up. There's that famous speech where the man traveled across the ocean and the entire speech that he gave to the graduating class was never give up, never give up, never give up. I think if you don't have anything else to say to God, that's an okay prayer. Just in the depth of it all, just cast yourself on him and say, God, never give up. Don't give me up. Just don't give me up. Never give up. Because ultimately, this is the most devastating thing that a God could offer in wrath for sin. It's, it's the reason that we need to be careful when we describe to people the mercy and the grace and the patience of God. Because one day judgment will come. For now he's endlessly patient. And an offer of mercy remains. He says, any who will seek me, you'll find me. 
But there is a day coming when God will no longer stand idle. His patience will wear thin. There's a day coming when the judge of all the earth will say, let those who are unrighteous be unrighteous still. That's a terrifying thought. And this is what Scripture, I think, calls or represents as a kind of divine abandonment. And it is what is taking place at the end of Romans 1 that if human beings insist on on constantly supplanting God as the source of worship and then suppressing his knowledge all along the way, that ultimately this is our fate. It's a source of so much of our problem and sin is being allowed to do and to get what we want. Oh man, the most dangerous thing in the world is getting away with it. And I think that's what Paul is saying. Secretly, that thing in us that just wants to get away with it, that God just needs, he needs to kill it. It's our only hope that God would kill it and we'd see what really would come if we were abandoned and left to our own devices. Now, he gives an example of what some of these are, so we'll move on to the second category. What does being given up, what does just letting the the rope out a little bit look like? Well, he describes them as dishonorable. That's the word that comes. He uses lusts in one section, section and then passions in another. So two things, at least in view, when I describe this category secondarily, where does God giving up, being abandoned lead to? Well, he gives a couple of examples up front, and then a list a little bit later on. But he says at least these two things. Unbridled, dishonorable passion will show up in these ways. Lusts of all kinds. He gave them up in verse 24, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Well, I think this probably indicates you know, fornication of any kind. Probably all kinds of different deviants in the way that we interact with one another. That whatever God designed in the good gift of attraction between men and women, the good gift of marriage between men and women, that whatever you could imagine is the gift that God has given to mankind in that, that this idea of lust, an overactive desire to make that good gift the ultimate thing, that when God gives us up and doesn't pull us back, that what we're left to sometimes is an unbridled, dishonorable lust for impurity among themselves, he says. So this is likely the idea As I mentioned earlier, all kind of fornication. But more than that, he goes on to describe that this is because of an exchange of the truth of of God for a lie, that they worshipped and served the creature. And I think these are interesting words. They worshipped and served the creature. So the idea of worship is they give too much value to, or they give value to it in a certain way, and then serve meaning they can't say no. They're enslaved to it. And isn't that an interesting way to imagine what's happening in the moment of lust? God has told you not to do something, but you desire it, and you do it because you say something like this, I know what you said, but I can't say no. See, ultimately, all of us serve gods. It's just the way we're designed. And human beings from the beginning are trying to kick against this. We all want to be our own God. And we all end up just being subservient, worshiping beings. Because it's what we're made to be. We can't exchange that at all. And it's that thing, that lust inside of you, the unbridled thing, that when we give into sin, in that particular moment, we're basically just saying this. I'm sorry, it's my God. I can't say no. 
I'm enslaved here. I can't say no. And it's this kind of thing that leads to dishonorable lusts and passions or dishonorable sins of all kinds. So in addition to those acts, this first category of lusts, which could be all kinds of sexual deviance, in addition to that, I think that there are also lusts, this idea of exchanging the truth and worshiping creature rather than creator. There's all kinds of refusals to say no. We refuse to say no to self-expression and comfort and pleasure. Whatever makes me feel good for my ego or for my fame or for just any, any, the smallest of pleasures, we refuse to say no. God offers his spirit and says, here's some self-control. We say, no, 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 I can't. I have to say yes over here. So self-expression has become a sort of God in our day and age. Pleasure has become a kind of God in our day and age. I would also say that there is an unhealthy lust in our day and age for the worship of creatures, basically. And whenever he mentions this, he says that one of the lusts this is coming because they've exchanged and now worship the creature. It widens the scope of where our maladies may come from. I think about how we often overemphasize and deify beauty and youth and strength. What does it say about what we value too much? This may be a little crass to say it like this, but we can't say no to hot people. How many things have been excused in the world simply because the person was beautiful or strong or youthful? We spend fortunes trying to stay young or get younger. You can explain the entire lucrative careers of people on this fact. They're beautiful. If an alien came and landed in the world and said, well, what, what does that person offer to the world? We would just say, I mean, look at them, I guess. Because we've overemphasized and deified and served beauty and youth and vigor. This kind of thing, Paul tells us, is a result of being given over to dishonorable passions. We've exchanged what is true and what is good and what is really valuable in the world for our own little versions of it. So, lusts of many kinds. The idea that we overvalue beauty and youth and strength. And then he goes on and he says, in the same list, that there are dishonorable passions. There's no other way to say it. This is one of the lengthiest sections in Scripture where homosexuality is forbidden and shown to be not God's design. It's directly addressed here that another form of dishonorable passion is the idea of an exchanging what Paul calls natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Now, there's no way around these verses, though a lot of people have tried and I get that it's a difficult topic in our day and age. A lot of people have, have tried. There's no way around these things. These are the kind of words, the descriptors that, God, that Paul gives for what it would look like to be impassioned, attracted toward, and then act on that passion, women with women and men with men. He calls it dishonorable, unnatural. He says that those acts are shameless, meaning they should be shameful, and they are error. Paul is saying as clearly as possible, that according to the design of God, this good gift of attraction, relationship between men and women, 
of our natural desire toward one another, that it has been upended. It has been upended because of this passion and lust that is stirring inside of us. And I am going to make no attempt here to answer all of the variety, and I'm not even going to say the variety in a kind of like, oh man, so many people have questions. The rightful and very good questions concerning this. Where do passions come from, and how do these lusts work, and why are they so powerful, and all these sort of things. I believe that we should answer and think about those kind of questions. But for now, I just want to say definitively that there is no way to read Scripture without seeing that God has forbidden these things, that they are to be avoided, that there is not a way to call what God has called dishonorable or shameful. There's no way to call these things holy. That being said, we must care for people and offer grace to people and listen to people and learn from people and realize that the depths to which these passions and lusts can rest in someone are nearly as complicated and as varied as there are people in the world. There's a a lot of different places, I think, in Romans. Wrath, the eternality of hell is another one of them. The idea of what is an apostle and where does the Bible come from. And all kinds of questions are going to be in Romans. And this seems like a good point to say, well, Lance, you just said you're not going to be able to answer where all these things come from, so when are we going to talk about it? One of the things that we've considered and we're going to press forward is something we're going to call Romans Recap. Romans Recap is that every couple of chapters, we're going to set up an opportunity or a moment for us to talk through questions that come up as we've studied the book of Romans. Questions that come up, either ones that I just anticipate and things that I'm desiring to study further. Hopefully, questions that you might have. My guess is that sitting here through the the teaching so far, you thought to yourself, well, this, this, what about this, how does this? And so here's what you're going to find or what I want to invite you to. In the coming days, when you go to our website under resources, there's going to be a little tab for Romans Recap. For, Roman, for chapters 1 and 2 of Romans, we are going to offer a few things. There's going to be a form there for you to ask questions. Please ask questions. It's not offensive. In fact, it's a very wonderful and a good thing. You go there, there's a, a frequently asked question thing. And then there's going to be a, hey, put in some questions thing. And you just say, this what's come to mind. What about this? Where can I get information on this? Or would you address this? You can put in questions. There's also going to be populated there a resource list, a PDF list of books or essays or things that we think might be helpful to answer further questions that would come up. Something that would say, that would perhaps be more academic, a little bit more careful, point you in different directions, things that I couldn't possibly do on a Sunday morning. There will be a resource list there. For you. In addition, on October 15th, it'll be the first one, Brian and I are going to record a live podcast recording where we go through all the resource lists and all the questions that people had about these issues. When I say live podcast recording, we're going to invite the church to come if you want to come and listen in, and at the end, there'll be 15 to 20 minutes where you can ask questions live. That will hopefully be an attempt to be a benefit to answer some of the questions that we know will ultimately come from, well, let's, I mean, if you forecast ahead, and I hope you are reading ahead in Romans, there's going to be a lot of things that require conversation. But for now, I want to point out that in the midst of God giving up, and in the midst of dishonorable lusts and dishonorable passions, that Scripture seems to be clear. It doesn't seem to be. It's clear 
that homosexual relations, women with women and men with men, are unnatural, they are an error according to scripture here, and something that God would not desire as the best design for his creatures. I said there was going to be three things. There was going to be the idea of divine abandonment, and then dishonorable passions, and then finally, debased minds. He goes on then, after describing all these kind of things, in case you thought to yourself, well, why would Paul point out that just one particular sin and make it such a big deal? Why only deviance physically between people? Well, he doesn't stop there. He goes up and he says that ultimately what's going to be happening is that if they refuse to acknowledge God, they'll be given over not only to dishonorable passions in these areas, which he mentions, but also just take a look at the totality of what he calls a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. Now, I want to point out something that's interesting here. He says a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. The connection between mind and doing is pretty clear here. That ultimately, the things that you entertain and believe and are committed to find their way out in your fingers. This is the reality of being human. Ideas have consequences. That's the thought here. Ideas have consequences. And that ultimately, one of the things we'll be given up to is a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then Paul gives a, an idea of an encompassing idea of an inability, a complete inability to live according to the fruit of the Spirit. That we simply, all human beings, even if you're not finding yourself in the, the list that he just mentioned of dishonorable lusts, that there is a complete inability to live according to God's design. I'm fairly confident here that this list of sins is not exhaustive. You know, it's not possible to list every possible one, but I got to say he gave it a good college try. Like Paul started out and he said, they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness in verse 29. And it's like he could have stopped there and he just kept adding words and kept adding words. Maybe he thought to himself, well, I can't explain them all. Well, I don't know. Let's give it a go. And then he just, he just writes out envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent. My favorite one in the entire list is inventors of evil. You ever heard something so heinous you thought to yourself, how did they even think of that? How could that even be possible? Well, Paul says, here's what happens. A debased mind gets to the point so wrapped in on itself they will invent forms of evil. I also want to point out, kids, if you're here, some of this stuff may seem over your head and you say to yourself, I don't know, adults are weird. They talk about strange things. Well, he includes for you that there's going to be an idea sometimes to be disobedient to parents or foolish or faithless. And here's a little tip also for you kids. Even grown-ups can be tempted to be disobedient to parents and foolish. And all of these things come from the fallenness of our minds. We are unable to think as God thinks, unable to value as God values. The debasement of our minds shows up in the fact, it says, at the, by the time we get to verse 32, of not only what we do, but what we celebrate. That sin is shown ultimately in a culture and in a person by not only what they do, but what they celebrate. He says, they know that God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And it's this particular thing, in addition to the passions, I know that the topic of homosexuality is very, very difficult 
in our day. And I understand, and I believe this to be true, that there have been times when it has been pointed out and singled out as sort of a, a whipping boy of sins, a scapegoat, to conveniently ignore all other manner of craziness and evil, and this has become pointed out and saying, no, that has absolutely been true. But I might also say that I believe homosexuality in our day is, an, is a very difficult and a particularly, it's a sin that is particularly requires care to handle. Because not only does it happen, but we have, and I think Paul would say here, there's a debased mind that has created a circumstance in which not only do these things happen, but they're celebrated. And then more than that, there is a demand that these things be celebrated. That ultimately, the mark of a debased mind is that we not only do and not only celebrate, but we demand celebration of what God condemns. And that becomes difficult. Because if you say to someone sometimes, I want to love you well, I want to care for you, you're welcomed with you, they would say, yeah, but do you, for instance, do you, do you approve and love of what I'm doing? And if you say, well, I, I don't think I could go that far. I don't think I would say that. I, I, don't, I don't believe this is probably good for you. That there is friction and tension and difficulty. That you would be rejected for being unwilling to approve of what someone is doing. And this happens in a manner of all kinds of things, but I think particularly now, this is an area. And it could be, I'm sure that someone could say as a, as a critic, well, the reason that that's the case is because it's been so often handled poorly. That might be very, very true. But eventually, the pressure to celebrate what God condemns becomes a very, very difficult thing for people to manage. And I think it's one of the reasons that this particular area becomes so tense so quickly. That scripture is clear that thousands of years of church teaching have been clear in one direction. And though we've not been as gracious as we could be, I'm sure, in many, many circumstances, that to continue to even talk about these things in a disapproving way brings condemnation. That makes this very, very difficult. I don't know exactly how clearly to spell it out. But there are fewer, there, there aren't many parades for thievery, right? I mean, that, and God puts them in the same category. So that presents a particular challenge, I think, for Christians especially to say, well, what do we do with this? The Bible says this, we love people who are on a different side of these kinds of things, and what do we do? My guess is it leads to a myriad of questions. And I would also say this. One of the things, or one of the ways that people often interpret and hear Christian teaching on these issues is to make it flattened, to believe that somehow what we state to be true in facts, and this, we have to have assertions, there's truth in the world, that by stating these truths, that means that's exactly how we would care for or pastor every single person. So if someone came to me and they were struggling with or thinking through same-sex attraction, or if someone came to me and they weren't struggling with it at all, they just said, hey, what do you think about this? I would like to be a part of your community, that somehow all I would do is robot robotically over and over and over again repeat to them the end of Romans 1, as though all I could do was dispense truth in that particular moment. Now, I will dispense truth, and I think that it's absolutely going to be the backbone of the things that we can finally and ultimately come to a conclusion on, 
But I want to remind you that caring for people and offer, the offer of grace and of mercy and patience with people and praying for people and loving people is not always as simple and flattened in 2D as, here's a truth dispenser, take the Pez, because I don't have anything else to give you. And I think sometimes that we need to be able to think in both these categories. The assertion and statement of truth is vital for any organization. We need to say, what do we believe and what are we built on? And then we'll also need the wisdom of the Spirit of God to know how to pastor people and care for them in relationship with that statement. I don't know if that makes sense or if I only feel these tensions. I don't know if I'm the only person who interacts with this, but it's worth mentioning. And let me also state definitively, as much as I would say that Scripture describes these things as forbidden or unnatural in all of these words, all the nastiness that is described there, might I also remind you that there is no such sin that is beyond the forgiveness, the sanctification, the washing of Jesus Christ. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul lays out a list that's very similar to here, not quite as extensive, but very similar. He includes dishonorable lusts and passions, but he also mentions those of us who are prideful and thieving and cheating and stealing and all this sort of stuff. And he says, left to our own devices, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then this verse, which ultimately is the hope of all people everywhere, not just people who struggle with particular sins. This verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And such were some of you. Now the list before this is pretty exhaustive. It's similar to the one in Romans chapter 1. Thus were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. At the same time that we hold up the backbone of, of scriptural teaching, that it says this clearly and we, we don't dare change it, we better and we must also insist on the truth of the grace of God. That people should hear from us just as loudly, just as passionately that there remains grace for all who would receive it. There is coming a day when God's patience will run out, but it is not today. He is patient with us, and he is merciful with us. He stands ready with mercy. He answers the prayer to be kept from evil. He can wash clean and will wash clean if we ask him. He can renew debased minds. He can give you a passion to begin to see what he sees, to love what he loves, to reject what he rejects. God is not only ready, he is willing more willing than we are to receive sinners, to, to hear confession of sin and to come to him. And none of us, no matter what area of sin that we struggle with, no matter where we find ourselves in Romans 1, conveniently tucked away on the other side of, yeah, some people do that, or right in the middle of the fight in these things. There is not separate paths of hope. There is one path of grace that leads to Jesus Christ, and it is where every single person is washed. So the last word, the final word, the definitive word that we declare to all is not this one particular sin keeps you in a category that is unreachable, but rather join us. We found forgiveness for all manner of unrighteousness, all manner of sin that we continue to struggle with. And if you would just come to Jesus, he would receive you and move in you and change you and wash you and make you clean.
The wrath of God is a terrifying thing. God's abandonment is a terrifying thing. To be left to our own passions and lusts, a terrifying thing. To have a debased mind where you can't even see straight anymore, you begin to celebrate what God condemns, that's a terrible, terrible thing. So who can deliver us from this situation of death? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for the gospel. Thanks be to God for hope. Forgiveness is offered. Let's receive it. The final word's not wrath for those who are in Christ, and we must declare it. Let's pray. God, I ask for the opposite of foggy, debased minds. Help us to see clearly. I pray, God, for people that I know and love who are wrestling, struggling, feeling condemned, especially for whom this particular passage, these words in the Bible are hard. God, I ask for light. Teach us to be gracious, to be loving, Help us to hold truth tightly and love well. God, I pray for all of the questions that swirl in a room in reading a passage like this. Help us to be faithful and patient, listen well, learn together, that ultimately we learn of you and from you, and that you'd be honored in our midst. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.